Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Before I turn it over to my co-host, Rahul, I wanted to send a special thank you and shout out to all of our listeners, supporters, and guests for Biotech 2050, as we just crossed the 50,000 listens mark for our podcast. We couldn't get to where we are today without your tremendous support and participation and the vibrancy of the biotech community. So thank you. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I am very excited to welcome a close friend, Ankit Mahadevia, founder and CEO of Sparrow Therapeutics. It's amazing to have you on finally, Ankit. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for the invite and dialogue as well. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So to start off, we'd love to hear a bit more about your background and career trajectory. Yeah, great. You know, as I often tell folks, I have no linear path to get to where uh, I've been at Sparrow, really just going from one experience to the other to see what I can learn. I'm a clinician by training, though way back when, you know, in university, I knew I liked science, I knew I liked public policy, and I thought the idea of trying to make a difference in healthcare made a difference to me. And I spent, you know, the next 15 years trying to figure out how that would all work. And so I've done a variety of different jobs and, you know, they've led me to this. And so I actually started my career out of college in public policy. You know, I was an economics major, studied healthcare policy in particular, and thought that I would be the person with the clipboard behind the elected official trying to make things happen. And, you know, for a period of time, I gave that a try. I was first working for the government of Mexico in uh, one of their health insurance institutes. And that was fascinating, both because I didn't speak Spanish before I got there and because you know, they have a lot of healthcare issues that are both similar to what we face in the U.S. and are unique. And then moved to the U.S. government. I worked for the Government Accountability Office. And we worked on Medicare and different ways to make Medicare function better. Uh, and then finally, the brief stint on the Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. And as I kind of look back, I learned a lot of interesting things. You know, at that age, I actually joined GAO before I was old enough to drink. I came in for my orientation. They were going to take me out for a beer. And I had to sheepishly inform them that I couldn't get into the bar because I wasn't old <laughs> enough. And, you know, but at that age, I met a lot of interesting people, did a lot of interesting things. But, you know, on the macro, we really didn't get anything done just because of the speed of the way the policy works and where we were in terms of the political majority. So that was disillusioning. And you know what I decided to do is what you know, every liberal arts major thinks about, which is go into consulting. And I went to a group called Monitor Group and worked on healthcare clients in strategy and marketing. And Harvard Monitor was a spin out of Harvard Business School from Marco Porter. And so we did a lot of you know, strategy work and it was an interesting way to see the world and see healthcare. And you know, in that period of time, I learned a lot about the business side of healthcare. I was starting to get old in terms of the travel also did a you know brief stint at McKinsey as well. And what I had to decide at that point was, you know, did I want to spend my life kind of building the consulting business and doing a little bit at each time? But again, for me, the impact was frustrating. We'd make a lot of great recommendations and we'd often move on before we could see the fruits of our labor get affected. And, you know, that was again a little frustrating to me. And the other thing that was going on in the background was just by virtue of the cases I was working on, I spent a lot of time with physicians. 
I spent time with cardiologists and cath labs, and I spent time with anesthesiologists and, you know, got to see what they did every day. And like many good South Asian firstborn kids, I'd done all my pre-med requirements as well. And so there was an opportunity for me to think about, you know, whether I wanted to go into medicine, because it was kind of that period of time where it would still make sense. And I didn't, you know, want to go five more years into my career and decide I wanted to train. So for me, it was now or never. And I just couldn't, I guess I'd say, be on my list of regrets if I didn't study medicine and get a glimpse of what it's like to make people feel better one patient at a time. And the other thing that I should note was I was part of a program in university where they did give me admission to med school that I kind of sat on for three, four years, but ultimately decided I wanted to see the country and ended up at Johns Hopkins, where I began my training. You know, Hopkins was really well suited to what I wanted to do because they have one year of what you're supposed to do and then three years of what you want to do. And I took that to the extreme and did a lot more years than three of what I wanted to do. And I did a variety of different odd jobs throughout the whole thing. And the reason was that I, I found medicine fascinating. It's the language I still speak every day here at Sparrow. But I thought that there's just a broader world out there and there's an opportunity to make an impact beyond one patient at a time. And Rahul, you, you know this, I, I just had this kind of explore every possible thing I could possibly do one, you know, one thing at a time. And that's what I did for a very long time in med school. And my dean probably still has a black folder on me in terms of how long I took to finish training. I did all kinds of things. Got an MBA at, at Wharton, you know, in, in between. I went to Genentech and I learned how to do business development from some of the, you know, Joe McCracken, who's kind of the OGs in terms of, of how you do deals and, and build things out. I went to help on a leverage buyout of a hospital chain, went back to the Hill, and also caught the bug in terms of starting a company. So one of my professors, who's a head of the pain service at Hopkins and also was a venture partner at ABC Fund, found a patented drug to help patients feel better with neuropathic pain. I was the only person he knew who had any biopharm experience. And in Baltimore, Maryland, at that time, that probably was true. And, you know, we started a company and, you know, it was just a uh, an interesting experience for me. And then all of that time, my dean called me up and said, look, what are you doing? It's been years. Are you going to be a doctor or not? And I said, fine. Uh, I decided that you know I wanted to set my sights on ophthalmology. Again, for that same reason, you get to do a little bit of everything. You get to be the eyes surgeon, the eyes oncologist, the guy, eyes allergy physician. And so it was a way for me to decide by not deciding. And you know, I went through my publications, got ready to apply, and then got a call from uh, the folks at Atlas Venture. John Francois Formella, who's on our board today at Sparrow, and I consider one of my mentors, reached out and the team did. And they were remaking the way they think about venture capital to the venture creation model. Sitting here today in 2021, there's several firms that have learned how to do it well. You know, Atlas was one of the very early adopters of this back in 2008. And the idea was rather than throw money over the fence and become a traditional investor, build the companies that you're going to invest in, operate them, set them upright, and then watch them grow. And that appealed to me just because of the founding experience I had had. And also because I thought that the idea of building something therapeutically was resonating with me. And, and honestly, I didn't really join the Atlas team at that time with the idea that that would be my career. I honestly thought I was going to do it for just a couple of quarters or maybe a year at most, and then go back and, and finish my training. And there was this point in terms of whether I, at some point I had to decide, you know, and it quickly became apparent that I couldn't do that. I had to decide. And one of the things that really stuck with me, you know, at Hopkins, as you get further on in your medical training, they let you operate at more of the intern resident level as a sub-intern. 
you know, I was at a diabetes clinic and, you know, we were managing these patients and taking care of them. And, you know, that was uplifting to, to really try to really help patients with serious disease that really didn't have other options care-wise. But I kind of noticed the difference between me and my colleagues. You know, in my spare time, I'd be looking up the Wall Street Journal and I'd be thinking about what Genentech was doing at a given time or thinking about what the policy implications of health reform would be. And this was the waning time of the Bush administration. And, you know, my colleagues were looking up every last medicine that could help their patients. And my colleagues were thinking about their research plan. And I kind of realized that if I was going to go into academic medicine, which is what the ask was, it wasn't going to be something that was going to light a fire underneath me. And, and I said that, you know, I just keep gravitating towards all of the things that I was doing, you know, either with the company we founded in Baltimore or at Atlas. And it was at that point where I said, okay, I'm just going to put medicine down and I'm going to give the entrepreneurial piece my full attention. And this was tough, right? Because this was 2008, dawn of the financial crisis, didn't know where capital was coming from. It was just a hell of a time to learn how to build businesses because we had to do more with very, very little. I mean, just sitting here in 2021, the difference is just so stark in terms of you know, what options companies had and how you hire and what you do. But I learned. So that started a chapter that still goes on today where either as a formal part of the Atlas team or in terms of running our own companies. And I've been involved in forming nine of those businesses. You know, some of those include Sparrow, which we'll talk about today. Synlogic is another one that engineers microbes to do have therapeutic effects in the body. Rodan is another, which recently sold to Alchemies to help adjust neural circuits to better benefit patients for Alzheimer's disease. And in that time, you know, I've been acting CEO. I've helped build boards. I've done some pretty interesting partnerships. One of the things that I'm most proud of is that one of the companies that you know, we helped get off the ground with the team uh, now has a product on the market. That's Mgality from Lilly. So it's fun to watch their commercials during football games because we know, you know we had a, an opportunity to help bring that drug to the next phase. And then in 2016 or so, you know, we started the work of getting Sparrow and a few other companies off of the ground. And it was at that point where it was always fun for me to watch the companies build up, get to a point where they're really hitting the flywheel in terms of success. It was really hard for me to let go. I mean, the venture model at its finest is that you get it, companies to momentum as fast as possible. You find the right team and you let go. And the letting go part was really hard for me. And so what I resolved to do was as the next batch of companies that we were involved with got picked up, that I would choose one. And what I began for me was kind of a controlled experiment where there was a period of time where I was running three companies, each with their own venture board, each their own pharma partner, each with their own management teams. And rightfully so, each board was concerned about whether there'd be enough of me to go around. And I decided that at that point, I would decide whether you know, we would replace me on some of these companies or I would go full time. And I think the concept of Sparrow, which I'll go into in a second, is what really resonated with me. The other thing that really just kept drawing me in were some of the people that founded the business with me are either still on the board or still on our team today. And just the idea of going to work with them every day was something not tangible or rational, but I just couldn't shake myself from. And, you know, it's gone well. We've gone in really a five-year period from, you know, what was a seed investment back then, which was $200,000 uh, in two tranches, to, you know, where we are, which is, you know, we have a full clinical stage pipeline our most advanced program could help 2 million patients that suffer from infections that should be treated outside of the hospital. We're planning to submit our new drug application to FDA to be able to commercialize it. And we have several medicines that are in the clinic behind it and a team that's growing and really building a great deal of influence in this important field where we really need leadership. 
So that's how I got here. And, and the other thing that was an important pivot point for me was that kind of that light bulb when I was in the seat operating the companies and decided that, you know what, I'd like to be a CEO, you know, rather than kind of an investor and acting CEO, I'd like to be the CEO and then think about the investor piece or entrepreneurial piece second. And that was an interesting mindset shift for me. And I think part of it was the people that we've surrounded ourselves at with Sparrow. Part of it's the mission. And then part of it is it's just such an invigorating thing to have your to-do list every day or every week, get stuff done and watch things happen. And, you know, it's that part of being an operator that, you know, I don't think I'll ever let go of now. So that's how I got here. And maybe it makes sense to go into, you know, how Sparrow got here and we can go from there. Yeah, that sounds great, Ankit. Venture creation is certainly in vogue now. And I'm sure folks would love to understand what goes into getting a company up and running within the VC. And for the budding entrepreneurs, exactly what you mentioned, the founding story behind Sparrow. Yeah, I'll give the answer. It actually goes to a bottle of 18-year-old scotch. That is the reason why we started Sparrow and the reason why I put my hat in the ring to be CEO. So I think our chairman wouldn't mind me telling the story, but you know, our chairman is somebody I've known for a long time. He's the CEO of one of the Atlas portfolio companies, and we were friendly through just the Atlas network. He's a chemist by training, but happened to be in a company that was really deep in virology. And we shared a passion for the idea that you, know, you look at all of the innovation in our biotech ecosystem. One of the places that we really haven't innovated in a long time is an infectious disease. And so now we're living it in the pandemic. The issue is multiple. One is the science is extra tough because not only do you have to keep humans safe and have good pharmacokinetics, but you also have to kill the bugs. So you need to kill one type of life while keeping another type of life you know, going. And it's, it's scientifically very difficult, not to mention if you add the hurdle of trying to make something oral. So the science is hard. All of the easy stuff was figured out in the 50s and 60s. The bugs keep getting smarter, but we haven't innovated, number one. And number two is, this is the coronavirus problem, is that many of the threats that you know, we will face and will be right in the middle of every day weren't evident five years ago or, or 10 years ago. And given the cycles of drug development, it's just the maximal amount of patients required to be able to invest in something that's not a profit center now, but could be in the future. It's why we're in this mess with coronavirus, because we haven't invested ahead of these threats. So for Sparrow and antibacterials, we saw an opportunity that said the other thing that was happening was legislative. The government had passed a bill called the GAIN Act, which allowed us to move a lot faster from a translational perspective. So in other words, the unmet need was always there. The policy change meant that we could move a lot faster for a lot less capital clinically. So it felt like the right time to think about a venture capital-oriented approach to infectious disease. So, you know, Millen and I had been talking about it, lives in New Haven, Connecticut, invited him over to his place, uh, have dinner at a nice Italian restaurant in New Haven, and then come back to his place and had a nightcap. You know, we opened a bottle of, I think it was Lafrag and Ela Scotch. And we, I thought I was just going to have a drink and then drive home to Boston. And it turned out we made some progress on the, on the bottle. And it turns out that I ended up having to stay the night. During the course of that conversation, when we had the conversation about Sparrow, we decided we we're going to start it. And we agreed on what we were going to do for the company. And I just remember, I remember now Millen's my chairman, he's going to be my boss. And I ended up sleeping in his house because I couldn't drive home. And I wake up and he hadn't told his wife that I was staying over. And he wasn't up yet, but I was in his kitchen reading my email, scared the hell out of her. And that was the first time that I met his wife and you know, my first impression of my uh, new boss. But you know, needless to say, it's five years on and we're still working together. 
So, you know, the founding was, this was different from the way we thought about building many other businesses. You know, Synlogic is an example where you start with a great platform and you find the right applications and you squeeze every therapeutic drop out of the platform. This was different. You know, Melinda and I had the idea uh, and several others that we said, you know, infection is a problem. A lot of great programs we can get for good economics. Translational paradigm is, is great now. We can move fast. And by the way, in infectious disease, you can figure out very early whether your medicine's going to work. So with all of that in mind, we convinced Atlas, SR1, and a few other funds, Lundbeck Fund in Copenhagen, just give us a checkbook. We're going to go find some assets. And if it works, you know, we have a company. And if it doesn't work, we'll go find something else to do. And so we went all over the world. And our lead program came from a company in Japan. Our second program came here in Boston from a company called Vertex. And our other program came from a tiny little lab in Manchester, UK. We have you know, made many other bets beyond that that just didn't pan out. So that's how the journey started. And what appealed to me was the freedom to just go and curate what you want in a field that matters. The other thing that was interesting to me was the idea that you know, in this field, if we're successful, we're not going to be the hundredth company going after targets in oncology. We can lead. And the idea of having an impact in something that's so profound was exciting to me. One of the things I do remember when I wasn't doing leverage buyouts or going to business school while I was in med school was internal medicine rounds. And I remember seeing a lot of patients with serious infections and these patients were intubated. They just wasn't sure if they were gonna make it through the night find the right antibiotic, you round on them two days later, they're having breakfast with their kids. You know, for someone with, you know, limited patients like me, you know, this is one of the few interventions in medicine where just over a period of days or weeks, you can really change someone's life profoundly. I love that about the field that we're working on and, and it still guides us today. And then Sparrow went through this organic process where we, as our CSO and, and co-founder calls it kind of jumping on the backs of alligators, where we kind of brought in some assets, actually the founding asset, one that we did a pretty large partnership with Roshan, didn't work. And the good news is that we had thought about plan B and plan C, and we had other pipeline programs. Program that did our series B is no longer our primary focus. The lead program, our oral carbapenem that's going to help a lot of patients, we found it maybe a year before our IPO at a company in Japan. That's another good story. I think Sparrow is a story of you know, navigating failure with an alternative plan. It's a story of persistence. So I'll give you the story of how we found tebipenem. And tebipenem is what's called an oral carbapenem. What that means is for those that are familiar with healthcare, carbapenems are powerful IV medicine we use to treat a variety of infections. Uh, we use tons of carbapenems globally a year. What we haven't been able to figure out in the 30 years carbapenems have been around is how to make them oral. And why is that important? It's because when I learned how to be a doctor, we often prescribed another oral medication called fluoroquinolones. These are Cipro, if you guys have traveled, or Leviquin. These are drugs that are fantastic because they're good IV and you get good coverage oral and they used to kill a lot of bugs. Bugs are smart and they figured out how to exchange this particular gene cassette that allows them to spit out the fluoroquinolones and it allows them to chew up other agents like beta-lactams that you can use to treat this. So fast forward to 2021, a third of patients in the hospital can't respond to oral fluoroquinolones and a fifth of patients that go to the doctor's office can't respond. What does that mean? It means that there's over 2.3 million preventable hospitalizations just in the US each year. Why? Not because these patients are sick, it's because we don't have a pill to give them, so the only option to treat their infection is IV. And it's a pain. 
So what do people do? They go to the hospital and they sit there. Each time that patient does that, it costs the system 7,000 per case. 7,000 per case with 2.3 million avoidable hospitalizations is a lot of money for the healthcare system. The other thing they do is they sit in nursing homes. And now we know from COVID, that's a terrible idea. The other thing that smart hospitals are doing is they kick them out of the hospital and a nurse comes by with an IV bag, shows you how to IV yourself every day and says, good luck. And that's not good either. So the idea of tebipenem is it's an oral carbapenem. It has the same potency of an IV, but it's in pill form. And you know we went through a phase three study that showed when you put it head to head against an IV carbapenem, it does the job and it's just as safe. And why that's important is it means that you can save 2.3 million Americans a year, avoidable hospitalizations. You get doctors back to what they wanna do, which is get patients out of the hospital and you can save the healthcare system billions. So we're on the cusp now of filing for our FDA approval and looking to get that drug launched in the US. And so it's been quite a journey from you know 200K seed investment to thinking about how to talk to payers. We're thinking about how we're gonna to distribute to, to patients and we're thinking about how to put more drugs in clinic. But that was a tough one. Tabby Penham State was in a Japanese company who had no initial interest in partnering with us. We were able to, over the period of, almost 18 months, convinced them this was the right thing to do, and they've become a good partner of ours. And so Sparrow is the story of, as one of our co-founders likes to say, figuring out how. We knew we wanted to help patients with infection, and we tried different things to help. And ultimately, we settled on a recipe of programs and a strategy that really has worked for us. And at this point, you know, we're emerging as one of the leaders in the field. I'd say in the antibacterial side, there's not other institutions that publish more than us. You know, we have one of the broadest pipelines in the field. We've hired some of the best people that know about infection around the world. And you know, as we're successful getting Tebby Penham on the market, what I wish for is that we can be a voice for the important issue that's antimicrobial resistance. We have lived through a terrible pandemic because of an infectious threat that we did not invest for. The next threat could be viral, it could be bacterial, it could be a fungus. And we still have not invested beyond coronavirus. And we have seen that when the biopharma industry really focuses, we can get it right against infection. And what we're advocating for at Sparrow is to really be proactive as we did with coronavirus. That's great, Ankit. I'm curious, what do you think needs to change in terms of getting ahead of these threats? We're obviously talking about coronavirus, of these threats that aren't at our doorstep right now, but maybe in the future. And what would you advocate for outside of the biotech industry, where I think folks generally understand? Well, the, the good news, Rahul, is that there's a lot of good solutions already on the table. We just need the political will to act. And I remember from my congressional days, that's no small feat. But I think that what we need to do as a society is place a value relative to other things on preventing the next infectious threat. And the expenditure is not all that exorbitant in light of the many, many ambitious things that our government is aiming to do right now. You know, what's important, it's number one, identifying what those threats are, whether they're bacterial, fungal, or antiviral. Second is creating societal incentives to make sure that the developers who are going to sink tens or hundreds of millions into developing these medicines have a return on that investment. You gotta realize that nowadays, the most innovative companies that develop these new medicines often aren't just large pharma, although we've seen you know, Pfizer and others do that. They're the Modernas of the world and you know, the Sparrows of the world. And I think that in order to make sure we have a steady pipeline of defense against the next threats, we need to incentivize folks, even though the current market system won't. 
it's a really hard ask. I mean, if you have two medicines, one medicine where it's an existing need today, you could point to a product that's already getting reimbursed well. You can, after commercial people do the modeling and your finance people and say, okay, it's worth investing in a phase two and a phase three trial to make it happen. When you're talking about the next coronavirus, it doesn't exist yet. It's really hard to make that case. And there are solutions. You know, One is an act called Pasteur that's in Congress, whereby there's a comprehensive system to one, identify what those threats are. Number two, you create a market mechanism where there's some sort of return upfront for the developer in order to do this. And I think that's critical in order to make sure that there's a pipeline and our industry will spring to action. So that's what I think is needed is really just the will to shoulder some of these really good solutions like Pasteur over the line. And, you know, for those folks that do this sort of thing, I would say, you know, this is an important enough issue to society that I would talk to your Congress people and talk to your representatives at bio and pharma and other places, because we were resilient. We really showed what we could do in the coronavirus. But, you know, it's much like some of the things you do when you found a company, you did it, you made it, but you don't want to go through it again if you can help it. And so, you know, we should be investing not hundreds of billions, but the single digit billions or hundreds of millions that are required just to have some home base to lean on the next time one of these threats picks up. The other point that I'd make is that there's these kind of episodic threats like coronavirus, the kind of slow building thing like climate change, the same is antimicrobial resistance. Rain or shine, bacteria are inventing ways every time they multiply to evade the antibiotics we have. And tebupenem is a good example. There hasn't been an oral agent like it in 26 years. You imagine a bacteria that's innovating every second it divides versus us coming out with the same things that worked 26 years ago. It's a disaster in the making. And I think that the same approach we would take for the next viral pandemic is what we should do for the antimicrobial resistance issue. And as I mentioned, there's great solutions already well thought out by really good policy folks in a bipartisan manner. We just need the will to shoulder them over the line now. Awesome. Thanks for sharing those insights, Ankit. By the way, I'd be remiss to say that the conversation that you and Milland had when founding Spiro was a much more productive conversation than you and I typically have around the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, then, it, then it's more about the character of the scotch than it is about the business <laughs> but those are good too. <laughs> so, you know, Anka, given the interesting things that are happening in the life sciences space, it's hard to ignore how things like capital and talent and venture creation has really added vibrancy, I think, to the life sciences domain over the past 10 to 20 years. Maybe zooming out, any chance you can give us some thoughts on the macro of what's going on in the industry and your forecast for where it's going to be, say, in five to 10 years? Yeah, it's funny. I, look, I say this every year. I feel like there's never been a more exciting time for biopharma, and it seems to somehow keep getting more exciting. You know, I think your point is really well taken. You know, Atlas was one of the, and others, Third Rock and others were some of the pioneers of the venture creation model. I think to your point, the idea of marrying entrepreneurs and capital on the kind of cutting room floor has been exquisitely productive for the biopharma industry. And it's yielded some really important medicines on a much faster timescale than anyone thought possible. So I think it's been just an amazing addition to the toolkit we have. It just makes companies form that much more fluidly. They grow more quickly. I heard an interesting stat recently that over half of the companies that have gone public since 2000 are marketing their own products. And I would say when I started in this field in 2008, just given the where the capital sector was at the time, I would have never thought that was possible. 
your main option before you was to try to partner as soon as possible, you know, prior to your big expensive phase three. And now both with an FDA that realizes we need to be nimble to get drugs to patients, as well as, you know, this model that a lot of firms you know, are starting to really get right. It's just amazing what we're able to churn out in terms of therapeutic innovation. And, you know, it's made a bunch of biopharma stalwarts overnight. You think about how long it took the alnylams of the world to get there. You're seeing companies that are kind of getting there overnight, the ultragenics of the world and the horizons of the world took a while, but, but we're just getting to a point where we're much more fluidly able to wire companies for the long haul. And on a macro perspective, that is one of the trends that I've been really pleased to see is that both because of the venture creation model and also because of the kind of professionalism, patience, and quantity of capital that's now available in 2021 compared to back in 2008, companies are now able to invest for the long haul. It is not a pipe dream to think about commercializing at least one of your products yourself. Companies are beginning to wire for that. They're beginning to make investments that are less short-term oriented. And I think that's incredible. I think one of the side effects has had is that at this point in 2021, there are more interesting things that need to be done in our sector than there are experienced people to do it. And I think on the one hand, it's been an impediment to companies' growth. It's just really hard, as, as it always is, to find the right people to work with us. I think especially now, there's just such a mismatch between what needs doing and the amount of experience we've groomed over time. So on that one hand, there's a really nice outgrowth of that, which is that folks are being able to take on bigger roles earlier in their careers. And certainly for me, being you know, much earlier in my career in terms of taking the, the helm of a company, that really wasn't what it was like in 2008. I think that there's a prototypical vision of what a biopharma CEO looked like. And often that person had done a long tour of duty in large pharma and had many years of experience and had a lot of gray hairs. I have many now, as you can see, but your listeners can't. But I did not when I started five years ago. And, and I think that's been a nice development because you know, we were just a handful of us, were some of the early pioneers in terms of you know, being first timers and being early in our career. And now you're seeing that starting to grow. I think you're seeing a lot of very experienced 30 and 40 something CEOs that are really making a big impact on the world. And you think about the bridge bios and aquaroses of the world and others where you have CEOs that have really made an impact for their companies. And I think it goes to show something that I've always believed, but granted, I'm biased because I'm on that side is that experience is important. But I think that mindset and good listening and building a team and making it work are even more important. And I think that that's one of the importance of quality. And my advice for folks, you know, there's often this discussion, and I have to say I'm, I'm guilty of it the same. Are you ready for this job? Are you qualified? You know, have you put in enough time? And I would say to folks that, you know, are kind of thinking about the leap, don't stop yourself. In this world, it's such a fast moving and tropic world we live in when we develop drugs. I promise, even if you've been in the business for 30 years, there's something that you're about to do that you've never done before and you don't know. I think what's more important to us, and we call it this kind of being part of the adventure, it's being along for the adventure, being ready for what comes your way and being ready to solve things that pop up. And I think it's that resilience that we look for at Sparrow and that resilience that I looked for as I thought about the right colleagues to join us at some of the other companies we've built. You know, it's interesting, you know, you, you sort of cited a couple of real interesting companies as those where you have sort of younger founders, but also have created a lot of both patient value and economic value, right? Bridge Bio being a good example. And of course, you know, the, the Alice Venture Creation Model. I'm just curious, how do you see the business model of biotech evolving in the next couple of years? 
Because coming back to your, one of your earlier comments, 10 years ago, it was somewhat unheard of for companies to commercialize their own product. So I think we're starting to see a much broader you know, set of outcomes, models, frameworks. What do you sort of see as uh, some of the other disruption happening or innovation happening there in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, it's fascinating. I think the availability of capital and you know how companies have used it wisely has really kind of upended that kind of balance, right? And and so there was a period of time, this would have been 2010, 2011, where there's you know some economists that were kind of saying that look, the extreme efficiency for the biopharma model was that biotechs invent biopharma larger organizations do the commercialization. Large pharma should just get rid of all R and D outsource it all to biotech and they should become development and commercialization engines. And I think what's happened is the exact opposite. You know, I think what you've seen is that bio large pharma, just learning through how they're making their investments, have actually become even better at growing innovations in-house. I also say that biopharma has become better at trying to go further along in the value chain. And I think it's just an interesting, you know, kind of collaborative experience. You still see collaboration you still see where you know the scale of large pharma is helpful, in particular for certain indications over others. But I think that that is just a really interesting kind of reset of the balance. James Sabri, who led Genentech BD after Joe, was on a podcast recently where he kind of mentioned that this is the primary reason why companies will go to partners, not capital, but capabilities. Interestingly, I think that that specialization has kind of taken a step back. And I think that smaller biopharmas are beginning to grow what they need. You know, a great example is, I think 10 years ago, it would have been unheard of that a company would invest in its own manufacturing facilities. And now for cell and gene therapy, it's a strategic advantage. And, you know, I think that a lot of that integration is something that what you're seeing. I think that though, if I look at my crystal ball, I think that there's going to be a fundamental stopping point for that. And I think that that stopping point is the efficiency of scale and the availability of talent. The idea is that the more biopharmas you grow and and the industry is growing a lot of them, there's still only so many people that know how to run a cell therapy plant sitting around. And that is going to be an impediment to all variety of companies. And I think ultimately it's going to bring them right back to trying to collaborate with those large organizations who have a deep bench of talent to be able to do that. So I think it's going to come full circle, not because I think of capital availability as the issue, but I think it's just that it takes time to grow the right people to do the right things. And there's only so many of them. And that's what we're starting to run into as we think about venture creation. You you think about it, there's just hundreds more companies going public over the last couple of years. There's still only so many CFOs and deal lawyers. And, you know, I think that there's just a natural evolution that needs to take place where the next generation needs to get to the right level. And we need to be thoughtful about how we do this. When you're in a scenario where you have an insufficient supply of something, right? The marketplace tends to innovate to decrease its dependency on said constraint, as well as try to innovate on how it creates more of said supply. So obviously, you know, Clora, I think is a really interesting way, right, in which one can access a much larger pool of talent. But how do you see the efficiency piece or the innovation piece around what talent you need changing? As a good example, right, Sparrow today, in terms of the quantity of clinical programs you have, if you were at Merck, right, your organization would probably be three times, not 10 times the size of what it is today. How does the innovation piece around how we develop medicines 
play a role in solving for the talent constraint. Yeah, I think the point around Chloro is a good one. It's a good example. And also we've seen innovation, not just in the clinical space, but in the financing space in terms of the kind of hub and spoke model of trying to find the right external collaborators to support you through key critical milestones. You're exactly right. It is one of the evolutions of the sector that speaks to the time it takes to find the right person that fits your culture and your needs. And so I think that that's only going to continue to get bigger. I mean, you're seeing, again, coming into this, you know, in 2008, never would have thought you could take a company public without a sitting CFO, but you can, you know, thanks to some of these models, never thought you'd be able to run multiple programs in clinic without having someone sitting in your shop that can really mine these things. And I think that this kind of hub and spoke model is going to be here to stay. And it's probably one of the lifebloods for a, a growing company. I think that as companies mature, you know, there's sort of a time and place for when you invest in something in-house strategically versus uh, outsource it. And I think that, you know, we're going to find that balance. You know, a good example is it'll come back to is manufacturing in certain fields, right? Where typically that's been outsourced for a lot of good reasons, but there's a lot of good reasons why you want to build your own capabilities, you know, as an example. And, you know, I think that time will tell whether we can continue to innovate our way out of it. I mean, there's some interesting startups that are trying to think about that from a cell and gene therapy manufacturing perspective. You know, these are $100 million decisions that have irrecoverable outcomes. And so it's not something that you take lightly. And I think time will tell whether on those sort of big ticket items, that'll make sense. I think certainly for, you know, financing and for clinical operations and, and, and clinical design side, there's some great collaborators that can really at least get you running for sure. Well, Ankit, it's been awesome to have you on and talk shop for some time, which is something we rarely do. Thanks so much for being on, Ankit. It was awesome to have you on, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear about your career trajectory and going from med school to being a founder and CEO of a publicly traded company. Thanks for sharing the inspiring story. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, uh, Rahul Nalu, for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.